Welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Thursday, June 27th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, a show very much about Wednesday's debate. Here's how I'm going to break it up. The big picture about what we saw and did not see last night. Warren and the show of hands about health insurance. Castro's breakout moments. Gabbard's breakout moments. And debate bingo for Thursday night. Here's what you missed last night from the campaign trail. Last night, we saw the first night of the first debate of this primary cycle. That is a big deal, and it gives us a look at what's to come. Throughout the show today, I will be digging into specific candidates and their notable moments, but I want to start by talking about the big picture. Just what happened, what didn't happen, and why any of this matters. So the first thing that surprised me was the total lack of Biden. Now, of course, he was not on the stage, but he is far and away the frontrunner in the polls. And before this debate, I expected way more candidates to spend time specifically trying to chip away at him by name. But they did not. Biden was kind of non-existent in this debate. So why is that? Well, in retrospect, it's pretty obvious. The lower polling candidates needed to spend their time introducing themselves, talking about policy, and making sure that they are known for something other than opposition to Biden. Of course, they're all opposed to Biden. Nobody needs to say that. In a way, I think Biden's absence ended up being a gift for the lower polling candidates. Now, whether that dynamic changes tonight for Thursday's debate, let's wait and see. It might be an even more interesting gift if low polling candidates can come across with strong messages, even with Biden and Sanders as the elephants in the room. All right, next up, there is a whole discussion online about the relative amounts of speaking time that each candidate got. Now, the debate was, at many points, a shouting match. People talking over each other, everybody going kind of nuts. The candidates seemed to see no reason to pay much attention to the moderators, but definitely did have an incentive to try to get follow-ups whenever they could. That tactic of essentially jumping in and grabbing control favored the candidates who used it, in part because the first set of moderators really didn't shut things down when everybody started cross-talking. Instead, they essentially rewarded it by giving people more time. Now, there's one really interesting tactical moment, which is when the moderators asked for a show of hands around re-implementing the 2015 Iran nuclear deal, and Senator Cory Booker was the only candidate not to raise his hand. So, of course, the moderators called on Booker and gave him roughly 30 seconds, most of which he spent talking about how good that 2015 deal was, and then at the end saying he was just open to making an even better deal. This is part of why Booker ended up speaking so much. So here's the breakdown of who got the most speaking time in descending order from most to least, according to a roundup of stats by Vox. By the way, there are a couple different lists floating around. They are similar, but they may swap positions by a few seconds here or there. Anyway, point being, Booker had almost 11 minutes. Then we had O'Rourke, Warren, Castro, Klobuchar, Ryan, Gabbard, Delaney, de Blasio, and Inslee with just five minutes. Despite all the chatter about it online, I'm not sure there's all that much to learn from the speaking time ranking given one night as a data point. I'll be curious to see what happens on the second night so we can see whether there's a specific tactic that leads to these kinds of numbers. Right now, it really feels like the two tactics a candidates would try are, one, interrupt and or ask for follow-ups because the moderators seem to go along with that, 
and two, if there is ever a show of hands, just look around and do what nobody else is doing. More on that in the next segment regarding healthcare and Warren. Okay, I have just three more big picture items. First, it was notable to me that the overall field here has moved way, way to the left in just the past few election cycles. In this field, it is a moderate idea to say that your free college plan only includes free community college. You've got really high polling people in this field talking about all public colleges going free and arguing about the varying amount of major student debt relief they will offer. You also have essentially everyone moving left on immigration, which is a dramatic change from, say, a decade ago. Next up, the technical problems. Just as the second hour kicked off, the NBC moderators hit a brick wall when there were major audio problems. Long story short, when Chuck Todd tried to ask the first question, the candidates literally could not hear him. But we could all hear the mics that were still attached to the previous moderators and were audible, at least, to the TV audience. Todd and Rachel Maddow tried to fix this in real time, but the techs couldn't handle it, so they threw to an unplanned commercial break. By my count, this problem cost them precisely 6 minutes and 35 seconds. Now, I think they skipped or reduced a commercial break later in that hour in an attempt to make up for that time, but still, this kind of thing has to really irk the candidates because it really does take away from their time. And last up in this segment, remember that thing about the podiums lighting up that I mentioned earlier this week? Well, I finally understand that now. The podiums were all lit up blue, but when a candidate's time ran out, the podium turned red. But that red podium didn't necessarily stop anybody from talking. Let's talk about Senator Elizabeth Warren. She went into the night as the frontrunner in the group with by far the best polling numbers, and she came out of it doing just as well. In a text message poll conducted by Indivisible, voters were asked which candidate impressed them the most. They got 6,497 responses, and 56% of those chose Warren. Now, this poll is not in any way scientific or controlled, so I would have to put the margin of error at plus or minus 100%, but it is a reasonable indicator of where people who have signed up for text messages from Indivisible stand on these candidates. So, for what it's worth, the second place candidate was Julian Castro with 15%. Next, let's read from an NBC News analysis by Alex Seitzwald and Jonathan Allen. They went through each candidate, and here's what they wrote about Warren. Quote, her first goal was to do nothing to risk her substantial lead in polls over everyone else on stage. She succeeded. No one laid a finger on her and Warren dominated the early part of the debate. She took a big, perhaps calculated risk by coming out for eliminating private health insurance to create a single-payer system, but that may help her appeal to Bernie Sanders supporters. End quote. Yeah, so that brings us to a giant moment for Warren in the debate. I'm going to play a clip here that starts with Lester Holt asking a question, and then we'll talk again. Listen in. Who here would abolish their private health insurance in favor of a government-run plan? Just a show of hands, start off with. All right, well... Okay, so Warren's hand instantly shot up. Also, Bill de Blasio raised his hand, and no one else did. By the way, that's weird because Cory Booker didn't raise his hand, but he is also a co-sponsor of the Sanders Medicare for All bill, which would intentionally destroy private insurance. Go check out the podcast from April 12th if you want more about that plan. That show is called All About Medicare for All. 
So how can you co-sponsor a bill but not believe in the core premise of the bill? I don't know. That's a Booker thing for later, I suppose. Anyway, then Holt asked Klobuchar, who does not support Medicare for All and was not a co-sponsor, about what he called her incremental position on just adding a public option to Obamacare. Klobuchar responded, I think correctly, by noting that her position is hardly incremental from the perspective of the previous Democratic administration when Barack Obama was working on the Affordable Care Act in the first place. And then the question turned to Warren. Listen in. Senator Senator Warren, you signed on to Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan. It would put essentially everybody on Medicare and then eliminate private plans that offer similar coverage. Is that the plan or path that you would pursue as president? So yes, I'm with Bernie on Medicare for All, and let me tell you why. I spent a big chunk of my life studying why families go broke. And one of the number one reasons is the cost of health care, medical bills. And that's not just for people who don't have insurance, it's for people who have insurance. Look at the business model of an insurance company. It's to bring in as many dollars as they can in premiums and to pay out as few dollars as possible for your health care. That leaves families with rising premiums, rising co-pays, and fighting with insurance companies to try to get the health care that their doctors say that they and their children need. Medicare for All solves that problem. And I understand. There are a lot of politicians who say, oh, it's just not possible, we just can't do it, it's have a lot of political reasons for this. What they're really telling you is they just won't fight for it. Well, health care is a basic human right, and I will fight for basic human rights. So let's analyze that for just a moment. Warren said, quote, I'm with Bernie on Medicare for all, end quote. That sounds to me like a direct appeal to Sanders voters, and that is a very practical way for Warren to continue to chip away at the Sanders block and bring some of those voters into her column. The other thing is, you know, everything else she said. This is what Warren does best. She gives a statement of values, like in this case, quote, healthcare is a basic human right, end quote, and also backs it up with an understandable set of policies and practices and then says she will fight for the common person to implement them. In this case, she lays out the business model for private insurance. She says that's a bad system when applied to healthcare if it's a fundamental right, and she is going to fight to fix it. I think that's why Warren is doing so well in the polls and why she did so well last night. It is obvious what she believes and what she intends to do given the opportunity. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. 
Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Next up, Julian Castro. Now, we've talked about Castro a fair bit on this show, and to me, he seemed like the single biggest breakout of the night. Meaning, if people had not heard of Julian Castro before, well, now they have. He managed to get almost as much speaking time as Warren, and he focused on immigration policy, which is something we have covered on this show. If you're curious about Castro's immigration policy, just go back in this podcast and find the show from May 30th. It's really easy to find because it is called Julian Castro's Immigration Plan. That show explains what Section 1325 is, and that's a term that came up a lot in this debate. It also talks about Castro's personal history and gets into his so-called Marshall Plan for those Central American countries that he talks about in the debate. Now, Castro was not just about immigration policy last night. Castro also mentioned reproductive justice. He gave a shout out to the trans community. He called for passage of the ERA. That's the Equal Rights Amendment, by the way. And he said the names of victims of police shootings. He also went straight at Beto O'Rourke, who was the other Texan on stage. Reading here from a Vox Roundup by Emily Stewart, quote, Debate viewers, it appears, took notice. Google searches for Castro spiked by 2,400%, though most of those people were simply searching for who he is. According to Twitter, he was the third most tweeted about candidate in the entire 2020 Democratic field during the debate, just behind Senators Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker. End quote. I want to play a Castro clip here from a segment dealing with immigration and focusing on the recent photograph of a father and his young daughter who had drowned in a river along the U.S.-Mexico border. In this clip, moderator Jose Diaz-Balart speaks first. Listen in. Secretary Castro, if you were president today, oi, what would you specifically do? Thank you very much, uh, Jose. I'm very proud that in April I became the first candidate to put forward a comprehensive immigration plan. And we saw those images. Watching that image of, of Oscar and his daughter Valeria uh, is heartbreaking. It should also piss us all off. If I were president today, and it should spur us to action, if I were president today, I would sign an executive order that would get rid of Trump's zero-tolerance policy, the remain-in-Mexico policy, and the metering policy. This metering policy is basically what prompted Oscar and Valeria to make that risky swim across the river. They have been playing games with people who are coming and trying to seek asylum at our ports of entry. Oscar and Valeria went to a port of entry, and then they were denied the ability to make an asylum claim. So they got frustrated, and they tried to cross the river, and they died because of that. On day one, sorry. On day I'm one, I would do that seconds. executive order that would address metering, and then I would follow that up in my first 100 days with immigration reform that would honor asylum claims, that would put undocumented immigrants, as long as they haven't committed a serious crime, on a pathway to citizenship, and that would go to the root cause of the issue, which is we need a Marshall Plan for Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador so that people can find safety and opportunity at home instead of coming to the United States to seek it. By the way, that was more than a 90-second answer, which is well beyond the scope of the debate rules, and Castro's podium was blazing red for the last 30 seconds. But Diaz-Balart did not cut him off. Now, as I mentioned, the other big Castro narrative has to do with O'Rourke. They are both from Texas, and they are both seen as viable candidates for a Senate seat in that state in the upcoming election. 
O'Rourke is probably a little bit more viable given that he just ran a long and almost successful Senate campaign for the other Texas seat. There seemed to be a subtext here, which is basically, hey look, one of us is probably going to have to drop out and go run for that Senate seat. Castro came out swinging, trying to prove his presidential credentials. If it somehow comes down to which of these men from Texas is the better presidential candidate versus a Senate candidate for Texas, Castro definitely made a strong case last night. By the way, I do want to play you a ton of clips of the various Castro versus O'Rourke moments, but then the show would be an hour long, so I guess just look it up. Representative Tulsi Gabbard broke through last night in a way that was at once predictable and somewhat surprising. Let me explain. Gabbard is a veteran, and her campaign is very much about getting the U.S. out of its various wars. So the predictable part is that, yeah, she mentioned war quite a bit and showed a real command of those points and policy around that stuff. She was the only veteran on that stage. The unpredictable part here is that Representative Tim Ryan didn't seem to get how solid Gabbard is on this particular issue, so he tried, and I would argue failed, to confront her on it. So, okay, here is the clip of the night if you're curious about how Gabbard did on her key issue. This starts with Tim Ryan, and then you'll hear Gabbard jump in, and then Ryan tries again. Anyway, listen in. We must be engaged in this. We must have our State Department engaged. We must have our military engaged to the, st to the extent they need to be. But the reality of it is, this president doesn't even have people appointed in the State Department to deal with these things. Whether we're talking about Central America, whether we're talking about Iran, whether we're talking about Afghanistan, we've got to be completely engaged. And here's why. Because these flare-ups distract us from the real problems in the country. If we're if getting a drone shot down for $130 million because the president is distracted, that's $130 million that we could be spending in places like Youngstown, Ohio, or Flint, Michigan, or, re I'm or rebuilding. Congressman or Gallagher, rebuilding. I'm going to give you 30 seconds, actually, to is jump off what he what said. He described will, engagement as you the will tell the parents of those two soldiers who were just killed? in Afghanistan, well, we just have to be engaged. As a soldier, I will tell you, that answer is unacceptable. We have to bring our troops home from Afghanistan. We are in a place in Afghanistan where we have lost so many lives. We've spent so much money, money that's coming out of every one of our pockets, money that should be going into communities here at home, meeting the needs of the people here at home. We are no better off in Afghanistan today than we were when this war began. This is why it's so important to have a president and commander-in-chief who knows the cost of war and who's ready to do the job on day one. I am ready to do that job when I walk into the Oval Office. Thank you very much. Listen, I'm going to go down the line. I'm going to go down the line here. Well, you know what? You felt, you felt like she was responding. You get 30 seconds. Go. good man. Fair enough. I appreciate that. I hear what you're saying. I would just say, I don't, want to, be, I don't want to be engaged. I wish we were spending all this money in places that I've represented that have been completely forgotten and we were rebuilding. But the reality of it is, if the United States isn't engaged, the Taliban will grow and they will have bigger, bolder terrorist acts. We have got to have some present there. As, the as, the as Taliban was there long before we came in. They'll yeah, be and they there were, long yeah, before we exactly. leave. Well, we cannot keep 
keep U.S. and they were flying to Afghanistan, thinking that we're going to somehow squash this Taliban I that has been say, there. That I didn't every say other squash them. I didn't say squash them. When we weren't in there, they started flying planes into our buildings. So I'm just saying right now, the we Taliban have an didn't attack us on 9/11. Al Qaeda the, did. Well, I understand. Al Qaeda attacked us on 9/11. I understand. That's why I and so I many other people joined the military to go I after Al Qaeda, not the Taliban. The Taliban. The Taliban ahead, up was seconds. protecting those people who were plotting against us. All I'm saying is, if we want to go in to elections and we want to say that we got to withdraw from the world, that's what President Trump is saying. We okay. can't. I would love you know for us to. protecting Al Qaeda right now I want to go in Saudi down. Arabia. I want to go down the line. And the other notable moment to me was when Gabbard was asked by moderator Chuck Todd about her apology to the LGBTQ community after launching her campaign. Gabbard responded in part, quote, Maybe many people in this country can relate to the fact that I grew up in a socially conservative home and held views when I was very young that I no longer hold today. I've served with LGBTQ service members both in training and deployed downrange. I know that they would give their life for me and I would give my life for them. End quote. All right, we are running long today, so I'll keep this last story short. Again, the first link in the show notes is to Primary Ride Home Debate Bingo. There's a PDF for tonight's debates, along with instructions on how to print those cards. If you haven't tried Debate Bingo, obviously I recommend it. It's a way to engage with the debates, especially if you have other folks in the room, like maybe kids or friends who haven't been paying that much attention to the primary, and they want an activity to keep them listening for two hours. It's also something you can do on your own, and going on Twitter, if you're into the whole Twitter thing, lets you follow along with other people playing. You just search for the hashtag PRHBingo. You sort that by latest, and you just keep refreshing that. You would be surprised by how many people played last night and how much interaction there was back and forth. It was also a shock to me last night when multiple candidates managed to cross off one or both of their squares in their very first answers. Will that happen again tonight? Uh, probably not. So again, first link in the show notes, or if you're not into the whole show notes thing, just go to ridehome.info slash bingo. Well, that is it for one more episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter at Chris Higgins. You know, I want to thank everybody who spent time on Twitter last night talking about the debate and showing off their bingo cards. That made me really happy seeing all of you who are engaging with this election and with one another. I appreciate that, and that was my hope in making this thing in the first place. So thank you and keep it up. Next, my debate command center is still standing despite a surprise thunderstorm last night in Portland. That is a genuine rarity, like a once a year type of thing, and the weather picked a weird night to go there. But good news, the basement did not flood for a change, so I got that going for me. As always, thank you for listening, and I will talk to y'all tonight on Twitter and tomorrow on the show.